That's ridiculous. You're ridiculous. That was a, a hearkening back to the whimsy of old. I liked it. You're ridiculous. No, I do have a dick. There are about four people in my Skype contact list. I don't have many people I, I talk to on Skype. Mm-hmm. But at some point in the past, I obviously talked to Ryan K. Lindsay. Well, um, for a very early uh, mom cast, surely you yes. had him on the line. Yes, yes, we did. Uh, and oh, I think he's... I, I really like him, but he really does my head in. What, because he's brilliant? Yeah. he's so He's so prolific and productive... And as far as I can tell, his wife's quite amazing as well. She's very pretty. Yeah, that's well. Hmm. I mean, my wife's very pretty, but still, it's just kind of... <laughs> Not Australian pretty. He he gets to be Australian as well, and that, they're just innately cooler. It's all just a little bit more rad down under. <laughs> that's what I tell people anyway. I am. Uh... Pointing to my crotch. <laughs> Oh, you got there before I did. I don't feel very <laughs> fast tonight. <laughs> I've been ready for 20 minutes. Yeah, I'm sorry. What time is it? It's uh, 19 hell. minutes past. You see, the thing is, is that I get psyched up for 8 o'clock. Everything's set up. Headphones mm-hmm. are on. Everything's where it needs to be. And I'm sort of psyched and ready to go. And then the next 10 minutes or so is like a gentle decline <laughs> of energy. Oh, man, I'm sorry. Do you want to do a podcast? I'm sorry, I've delayed things by such a long time. <laughs> uh, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Um, I guess you can take the lead on it, really. You can do the intro and stuff, and then we'll just see what comes out of it from there. How about that? Sounds good. I haven't really got an intro, but I can start talking about it. That's normally good enough, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, that's how they work. You'll be okay. I believe in you. <laughs> oh, that's, that's just too much pressure. I don't like it. <laughs> I've been kind of mulling around for the last few weeks. I've been thinking, I can't remember exactly what triggered it off, but I've been thinking a lot about empathy and sympathy and how people tend to get the two of them mixed up and how there's a lot of common ground between them, but how I tend to think that sympathy, the way people traditionally mean it, is is a little bit... It can be useful, but I think it's a bit meaningless, whereas I really, really value empathy. The problem being, I don't know if I'm actually a psychopath. I should probably read that book, that John Ronson book about it. Um, But I don't tend to feel sympathy that much, or at least I don't feel blind sympathy that much. But in terms of empathy, I tend to feel like a bit of an open wound. Not an open wound. Yeah, an open wound whenever I um, read a news story about something terrible that's happened, I I try not to do it because I find it too difficult. It's not like I feel for the people in it. It's if there's someone who I can imagine what they went through in that story, I can't cope with it. And whenever someone's telling me about an argument between two people or a particular thing that they feel really idealistic about, I find it difficult not to see both sides of it or see where the other person might be coming from which people have told me is me being contrary. (laughs) It it feels to me like empathy, um, and it doesn't feel like that useful a character trait for me because it it can be quite uncomfortable sometimes. But actually I feel that there's a society we could do with more of it. I was looking up the two words before we started to record this because I I know what I mean by empathy and I know what I mean by sympathy – And it turns out that the actual definitions of both of them, there is an awful lot of crossover. So it's not really any surprise that people tend to get them quite mixed up a lot of the time. Because there are some uses of sympathy. The classic use of the the term sympathy is that your emotions are in sync with somebody else's. You can understand what they're going through. A lot of what empathy is, is the same thing. It's kind of understanding, uh, understanding or at least being open to understand or consider why somebody might be thinking things that they are or doing the things that they are. Uh, But the more traditional meaning of sympathy, I think, the one that people use most of the time is, oh, isn't that awful? It's feeling sorry for people. It's more like pity, which I think is a really useful thing in the very short term. 
it can be really useful for charities if they can parade a, a sick dog in front of you or uh, starving children in another country or people who've lost their homes to a flood or something like that then that immediate pang of pity can galvanize people to send money or to do something immediately then because that's a bit of a relief it makes you feel better because you've been able to help because you've looked at that and you've thought oh god that's awful i'd hate it if i lost my house or i'd hate it if i was stuck in a flood it's really wet i don't like getting that wet (laughs) or or something like that but by using the charity example i think you can kind of extrapolate and say that for certain problems like societal problems like homelessness or addiction things like that sympathy can be good for getting people engaged to the extent that they'll send money but without empathy those people just won't be able to understand the problem so it's like well i've given this same big issue salesman probably 50 quid over the last year why is he still if everyone's doing that why is he still on the street why is giving a homeless person just money not good enough why does it not sort them out why does putting someone in rehab for a week not always fix addiction And that's because we don't really understand why that person's addicted in the first place. We Mm. don't really understand why that person's homeless in the first place. There can be lots of reasons why someone is homeless, and they're not all economic. But without empathy, we've got no way of considering the different reasons why. And so in terms of raising money, sympathy is really good. But in terms of making society or changing society, we can't do it without trying to work out why we all think differently sympathy is only good as long as everyone thinks exactly the same way and everyone gets where they are in exactly the same way it feels kind of like a conclusion <laughs> it does so um, from <laughs> from the longest episode of unanswered to the shortest thank you everybody we'll see you next month i'm sorry <laughs> No, there's more to tap into there, isn't there? I mean, in one respect, sympathy and empathy, not just by the way that they sound, feel like they can, they're quite similar, like they relate to each other. But like mm-hmm. you've already said, is sympathy is, is more about someone being able to recognise that a situation is unfortunate and the onlooker can feel uh, that sadness or that sorrow, or as you say, pity uh, for them. But it also gives them a clear distance that you can go, isn't that terrible? It's not me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I think that's often the undercurrent in sympathy is that you can look upon a situation, recognize that it's unfortunate, that it's sad. You can go, isn't that sad? And then within a brief period of time, you can walk away from it. As you were saying with a charity example, it's that short, sharp shock of pity that gets you to uh, pledge a fiver. You feel like you've been useful and you walk away. Empathy has such a difference in the respect that it asks more of the onlooker. You would look upon a situation, recognise it as unfortunate, and be able to put yourself in that position too. Whether it's from being able to imagine how you would feel in that situation or through perhaps having an experience, either your own experience or from someone that you know. And, you know, they might have been in the same situation, in which case you've heard their story and now you feel more connected to whatever you've witnessed that is unfortunate. In terms of a minor tragedy, let's say, um, flood was a big deal to some people. This is the flood in England, not Bangladesh, or something more horrific with bigger consequences. We're just... In terms of England, you could look upon it, even with empathy, and imagine what it must be like to have the ground floor of your property flooded and and you're not being prepared for it and all that kind of stuff. But it's still not emotionally taxing Mm -hmm. in a way that empathy can demand of you if you are dealing with a situation that is more emotionally fraught or perhaps even taboo. Or completely alien to you. That too. You know, because we're very good boys, the taboo stuff is completely alien to us. So, uh, I mean, that's the thing. There's there's a level at which maybe empathy is vague and sympathy is more concrete. It's like one's soft and the other one's hard. 
uh, one's more solid. So yeah. when you're talking about, well, you can imagine what it's like to have the bottom floor of your house flooded. You are empathising, but only because, uh, you know, because you've had a friend who that happened to or something like that. You are empathising, but it's kind of an accident that you've got an experience you can relate it to. Well, yeah, but not always. I mean, I think there are some people who don't even have to draw on the experience of others, but they can just see it from a different perspective. Sure. That's the open wound thing I was was talking about before. It makes it very difficult to have any sort of controversial or emotional conversation with me because sometimes I think I'm empathising with the other person. And working out counter-arguments to what I think they're thinking, but actually I'm not, oh, I don't know. So that's a dead end. Don't worry about that. Snip. (laughs) (laughs) I'm pretty sure we've talked about this on other shows. We've definitely talked about it very, very recently. And this actually does tie into other shows we've had where we've talked about outrage and and just tolerance in general. But specifically when we're talking about charity... Uh, You've got a subcontinent, a huge part of the world, where because of the economy, because of the environment and because of the politics of the place, you'll have had years and years and years of uh, famine. Um, There'll be drought, but the people won't be able to deal with the drought, so they'll be starving to death. Um, It's a hopeless situation. Uh, People are born into that situation. People have huge families, um, knowing that the mortality rate is high. There are all these things. This is your. This is the people's lives. It's it's not uh, easy to sum up, and it's not a simple problem to solve. The easiest way someone can get the British people to care about that situation is to say, "Look, you really like Christmas, don't you?" Well, these people over here, they don't get to have Christmas. And, you know, they're starving to death and their situation's hopeless and it probably won't (laughs) snow either. And let's get Phil Collins on drums. (laughs) They definitely, we're not even um, interpreting, do they know it's Christmas? I mean, that that is the the name of the song, do they know it's Christmas or Band-Aid. I'm never entirely sure. I lost a blast. Last of plus. Oh my god, I just had a realisation, but I'm going to keep hold of my uh, train of thought. There are actually <laughs> lyrics in that song... That are terrible? That, well, they're, they're all... All of the lyrics are terrible. <laughs> yeah. But there's... There won't be snow in Africa this Christmas time. Or food, you know? There won't be food either. The only gift they'll get this year is life. Well, actually, that's kind of not the problem. The problem is they're dying. But that's besides the point. Yeah, they were given a gift and then someone's very slowly taking it away from them. But the one, the one that I guess we're talking about in terms of sympathy is, uh, tonight, thank God it's them instead of you. It just completely sums up that sentiment. And you can't fault the amount that simple song galvanised this nation. But ultimately, it means that people get to, once a year, they get to think about that, and they don't have to think about the fact that we don't know how to deal with poverty in our own country. There are going to be people in Ethiopia, whose lives were saved by this. But as far as I can tell, it's still not a great part of the world to be born in and live in. I didn't do any research before the show, by the way. And of all of that money that went out there, there are also stories of uh, mismanagement and lots of that money falling into the wrong people's hands because we didn't really understand the problems that people were facing before we started chucking money at it. Now, I don't know enough about this, to really talk about it at length without coming off a bit stupid. And obviously it still helped sending all of that money out there. Mm. But my point is, it's a pretty inefficient way to try and fix the world. (laughs) Sympathy looks on that problem and says the answer is food. And empathy looks at that problem and says, well, hang on a minute, food's not really the issue at all. Food's the end result. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Yeah, it's the symptom. It's, It's not the cause. And we've got a lot more work to do. Which would make for a more complicated chorus. I think as a society, we already kind of have the sympathy angle covered. Well, no, I I think we've got plenty of sympathy. Not all of us. You know, some people begrudge paying taxes and and don't really want to be helping people who are worse off with them with the, in even that, that monetary way. But, um, but you know, we've kind of got sympathy down and things still aren't great. So I kind of feel like uh, the next stage is trying to work out why we've got the problems we've got and maybe doing something about that. 
another example that's come up in the last couple of days as we're recording this. I, I don't think it's actually new, but I found a link online uh, yesterday of the uh, a, a group of Harvard students. There's a project that a Harvard student's doing. They're black, and they're finding that there's still a lot of racial issues in, in Harvard. There's an issue where it's still perceived that black people are only really there because of affirmative action and that maybe they haven't earned their place. It means that there are still certain tensions there that, that almost, to a lot of us, seem quite well, very old-fashioned, really. And so what this project is, is uh, they've done a play, but also the really the visually striking part of it that I saw was uh, there's a series of photos of black students, well, sorry, students of colour, because they're not, all, um, they're not all just African-American, with a piece of paper with something that people have said to them written on it. Something like racist or or, in, or intolerant or thoughtless or hurtful that's, that people have said to them. And some of the stuff that they've had to deal with is just straight out racist. I mean, all of it's a bit ignorant, but some of it's just straight out racist and obnoxious. You know, people who genuinely do seem to think that they've only got there because of affirmative action. But the thing that struck me was that quite a lot of the comments that they faced were actually by people who clearly thought of themselves as being really tolerant and really not racist at all. And I think I think there's a better word for it than racist, to be honest, because racist, to me, always suggests something that's quite aggressive and deliberate and hateful. This was just, it's not really intolerance, it's just really ignorant comments. Things like, you hardly seem black at all. The people thinking they're being inclusive by drawing attention to the fact this person's black, but it's not a problem with them. They're absolutely fine with it. The the thing that interested me about those statements, and I should have collected a few of them, but I didn't realise I was going to be... I honestly hadn't made this connection until we started talking, um, is people were saying things that when it was written down and you you were reading it on the internet, it was like, how did that person not realise that what they were doing was singling out the person they were talking to and making them feel bad. You, you think you're being cool with them. You think you're being sympathetic. Well, you are being sympathetic. But you're not really having much empathy for the situation that you're putting them into. And that's the thing that I think there's still loads of. I don't think we're ever going to be perfect at it. And I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a huge deal that we are ever perfect at it. It just, it just strikes me that I think a lot of the time the people saying some of this stuff would think of themselves as being quite empathic. You know, I like all sorts of people. I like black people. I like gay people. I like uh, uh, funny little curly-haired Greek people. I, I like short people. That's me as well. I'm talking about there. Um, then they're not really paying attention to who that person is. Particularly, they're not listening, which I think uh, you might have said earlier on is uh, really the whole point of empathy isn't so much just that you notice someone's there; it's that you also listen to them. Yes, you ma- you make an effort to hear what their experience of things might be. Even even in saying something like, "Oh, you know, I like <laughs> I like black people," <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, the fucking answer is I like people. You're not even singling out a group. Once you compartmentalise people, you're already going down that sort of um, exclusive, sympathetic route hmm. where, hmm, well, some of my best friends are gay. It's, it, hmm. it's like saying, well, some of my friends fill this column and some of my friends fill the other column and there are a few friends that fill the third column. And that's sort of saying, look at me, I can tick these boxes come on dude we're supposed to be a bit more progressive we're supposed to move beyond that it's really you just know people and all their lives are different and that's the way it should be what you're basically trying to say in that is um look at me aren't i sensitive to all of the different type of people out there which is in effect like an empathetic thing (laughs) but it's been dressed in a sympathetic way, because you've compartmentalised them and you've grouped them, that sort of exposes the lack of empathy they truly have, because they haven't put themselves in the situation of the people who would rather not be put in a group, who doesn't want to be seen as a minority. You see, even now, me saying, they don't want to be in a group, they don't want to be considered a minority, is committing a very similar crime. (laughs) The white privilege oozing off us. It's just yeah, brilliant. You see, but I don't like I that think, term. No, and I think privilege is part of this, isn't it? I think um, 
a lack of empathy and the checking of privileges are quite related. And it's something that you've articulated a lot, Mm -hmm. both in real world conversations and also online, is the whole thing about checking particular privileges. So maybe you can give us a perspective on that. Me, yeah. Well, the the thing about it is, I I try to be aware of the fact that I think the whole idea of white privilege, the whole idea of white male privilege, is we get to have the opinions we have and a lot of the ways we behave are because we've never had to consider that people wouldn't listen to us because you know we're we're white and male and we've always been on top, so we wouldn't understand what it's like for other people to not necessarily be taken seriously because they're a woman or to not be able to hold hands in public with their partner because, you know, because I, th- I think one of the one of the examples is if you say, well, why don't, I mean, who gives a shit if you're gay? Why wouldn't you just ki- kiss in public or whatever? Because we've never had to think twice about that stuff. The idea of checking your privilege at that point is, is I think, a call to have more empathy. I think at its core, the idea of people checking their privilege is kind of a healthy thing because it's kind of trying to promote the idea of empathy of understand of uh, seeing other people or not even seeing them just accepting that their experience isn't the same as your experience and maybe trying to understand what that experience might be the problem is that the term checking your privilege the idea of white male privilege has become something that's used as a bit of a hammer to beat people with instead because you know the internet because this is what people are like once they get a podium and again we <laughs> I said from one of the three podcasts that I'm on. <laughs> Have you ever had it pointed at you, disregarding the fact you're actually Greek, Cypriot, and not Caucasian, um, in the whitest of white sense? Or is it something that you've just witnessed? I have had people call me on it. Well, not call me on it, because that suggests that there's something to be called on. But I've had people trying to cancel out me having a point of view based on the assumption that I just don't have any right to an opinion because I'm white and male and and stuff like that. In the past, I have argued with people about it. Well, not argued, but I've just sort of said, look, you do not know anything about me. You don't even know what I look like back then. This was a thing. You don't really know anything about my sexuality. All you know at this moment in time is that I present as heterosexual. You don't really know anything about my relationship with race. Because all you know is that right now, you know, I get to be the white guy among other white guys in the room until my surname comes up. At which point, you know, people can take the piss out of me and they're perfectly allowed to, apparently. Um, And I say apparently as if I'm really offended by it, but actually I'm really not. And then there's this assumption that because you're male, you've always been on top of the pile. But the truth is, that's not true. I'm like tiny. I did not have a great time. I did not get to feel like my voice was being heard when I was growing up or when I was at school because I wasn't an alpha. The popular, gorgeous people were always going to be the ones who people paid attention to and the rest of us kind of disappear into the background a little bit, male and female. So, yeah, I used to get pretty irritated by it and I'd, I would get into arguments with people about it because I felt like they were cancelling out my experience and my life. They stripped out your individuality by putting you into a very wide and faceless unit. Yeah, we have cycled back to the idea of empathy because they clearly didn't even really care what my life experience was Yeah, in those conversations. I think part of it is you don't even have to really understand where someone's coming from. You just have to understand that they're coming from somewhere different than you and you might never understand it, but it's okay. There's a thing that Merlin Mann says, which I, I don't think he invented, which is... Uh, The worst thing about other people is they always have their reasons, which is basically suggesting that, like, people aren't evil. Sometimes they just are coming from a different place than you. Yeah. (laughs) The most ambient way to be empathic is to just kind of figure that that people are the way they are because, you know, there there are reasons why, and you don't need to know what they are. You just uh, need to know that it isn't because they're an evil person, that they don't agree with you (laughs) or something. I've had a situation on Twitter recently where I know a person on Twitter who's a bit of a complicated guy, and I won't go into too much detail about it, but sometimes he presents as a bit right-wing, because I think he is. But the thing I found is I'm in this interesting position of not really agreeing with that person, but having other people come into my Twitter 
experience and attack him and I've immediately been wanting to recall back at them and say, no, hang on a minute, you haven't really taken that. You've literally, this person's used a couple of buzzwords that you didn't like, uh, a couple of words that you've clearly got some sort of search up for or something. <laughs> and without taking any time to find out more about them, you've just attacked them. Now, maybe if you'd taken more time to find out more about them, you'd find that, that there were lots of reasons to attack them. But at the same time, why go attack people? <laughs> it's not exactly a healthy way to engage with the world. It's not trying no. to work out why other people think the way they do. I've seen people say online when called on the fact that they just uh, jumped in and started pouring invective on someone and saying they should die in a fire and stuff. Um, something that's used by the left and the right, it turns out. I've seen people take the stance, well, fuck them, they're wrong, so who cares? Sort of, they're wrong, so they're basically fair game. And... I just find that peculiarly teenage... Sorry, teenagers. I find that a peculiarly shut-off way of looking at the world. And I want to say childish, and then I realise that basically the thing I'm, I'm really thinking makes me referring to teenagers a lot worse, which is it's kind of a sociopathic way of looking at the world. It's like, fuck him, I don't agree with him, therefore he is less than human to me. He doesn't deserve the same rights as I'd expect. It's, it's funny calling that sort of behaviour childish when if there's anyone who is open to differences or is capable of breaking friends with someone over a silly reason and then being friends with them again the very same day is a child. That's if, true. If anything, that sort of point of view comes from an adult who has done their growing up in their frame of mind and don't want to uh don't want to change anymore no you're right it's it, it is actually much more a teenage into young adult into adult behavior than uh than a child like so i don't care if i offended teenagers with that fuck them there was something else actually shit shit hang on my computer keeps trying to restart to load updates stupid windows it'll never take off <laughs> Your instinct at this moment, I know, is to say, uh, you know, Apple machines don't do that. Actually, no. No. <laughs> That's your prejudice. <laughs> I know. The, uh, the instinct of a lot of people is to say that. Uh, uh, it's your fucking instinct is what that is. <laughs> uh, recently, a colleague at work was saying, oh, the sound on my computer isn't working. My headphones aren't working. There's something wrong with this. Uh, we went over and we established that she'd had the sound turned off. And that's why, and you know, it's something I've done several times, so I'm not judging her for this. <laughs> and then it turned out that her headphones didn't work properly anyway. And the chap who sits in between us, who is working on his giant Mac that he's insisted on having in the office, said, <laughs> stupid windows. He wasn't being ironic. It's almost always user error. It is always user error. See, you've got empathy for that. You realise that it's almost always user error. <laughs> yeah. The thing about empathy is having empathy for someone isn't always a value judgment. It isn't always you saying, that's a great person. To give an example, someone else online that I know wrote a very carefully worded few tweets about paedophiles. And the reason she was being really careful was because if you suggest at all that maybe paedophilia is a sickness, then you are a paedophile sympathiser. That's the way it works in our society at the moment. That's the way it works on the internet, certainly. Mm. To have some empathy in that situation, to try and understand that this is a mental health issue, it's a condition that people have. They're not just like that because they're evil. On the one hand, it means that maybe you're suggesting that we should go softer on people who are paedophiles. My position on it is, because I happen to agree with her in the things she was saying, we would be better at handling child abuse and we would be better at handling paedophiles if we didn't act like they were demons from hell. Yeah. That doesn't help. It isn't working. It isn't helping stop them behave the way they do. Um, see, I feel a little bit uncomfortable even talking about this because I, I know that in the society we live in, just talking like this suggests that I think that we shouldn't cut their balls off, therefore I must want to do what they do. Well, let me help you, because... Um... 
Yeah, no, it's fine. It's, it's fascinating, actually, that you brought it up, because when we decided this was going to be our topic, it was one of the things that I was thinking about as well. And I, I sort of, right at the beginning of the show, by saying that empathy uh, requires a lot of effort from us, and in order to be able to look at things from a perspective that might be emotionally difficult for us or might be taboo, yeah, so I had I had this in mind as well. I can bring a specific example over which might help dress this up a little bit. Um, maybe five years or so ago, there was a Louis Theroux documentary on the BBC about a incredibly large forensic unit, prison, whatever you want to call it, in the United States where paedophiles and sex offenders were being sent. So... Louis was there for, I don't know, a week or something like that, seeing how the system worked, how the Institute worked, and examining some of the stories of the, uh, of the offenders in there. I think it's important to look at these sorts of sex offences as two parts. You've got one part which is about, I would figure, and I think you do too, a broken part of the brain. Yeah. That there is um, some programming that didn't quite work out. And the way that many of us are wired, that tells us you don't do stuff like that. It just isn't there with them. Mm -hmm. But that isn't necessarily the problem insofar as the other half of it is the fact that they then act on it. Yeah, absolutely. And so there's something that can be managed, potentially, and one would imagine that many people who have that broken programming that makes them consider conducting sexual acts on children probably also has something in their brain saying, well, people don't do this, <laughs> Yeah, you know, and, and it may well be the thing that stops them from acting on it more often than they do. But it's the part of them that does act on it and engages in an awful lot of deception also, you know, it's it's not just one crime, if you like, because there are other things going on in order to engineer a situation in which they can conduct a sexual offence. Yeah. So with that in mind, there was one particular prisoner who was determined to prove that he had reformed, that he had rehabilitated, and he was trying very hard to show to the probation board that he was suitable for life in the outside world again. Because one of the challenges that these places have is that if you release someone from that institution, they need to be integrated back into society. Mm -hmm. Society is way less forgiving than perhaps a probation board might be. You know, it's not so simple to release somebody into society and have them be left alone. Because there are, you know, you have to declare you're a sex offender to your neighbours and therefore you're having to put a certain amount of trust that your neighbours are going to be able to react with some empathy and aren't going to just punch you in the face straight away or burn your house down. But he'd gone through, this, this particular offender had gone through maybe two or three reviews and each time had come across unsuccessful. Um, it didn't affect his determination, but what it did do and what really put me in a very uncomfortable situation was that he elected to have chemical castration. He felt like that was necessary to do, to have elective chemical castration to be a part of the package of him proving that he was okay and he could yeah. be trusted out in the big wide world again. And I shouldn't even have to say it, but I'm going to say it. I don't condone this stuff. I don't consider them evil either because I think it's more complicated. But the one thing I do think shouldn't happen is some guy having to change himself physically and chemically in order to prove that he can be trusted, that he has reformed. And after the show had finished, I wanted to discuss that particular element with my partner at the time, and she was not empathetic or sympathetic she was very black and white on the situation and you know they didn't deserve anything you know he should be in prison for the rest of his life he did a bad thing and that's the end of it and in some respects 
maybe they should be in prison for the rest of their life because the system and society in general is set up in such a way that these people can't be released again. So maybe it's the best place for them. But that wasn't the aspect of this argument or this debate discussion that we were having. Whereas I had some empathy for that guy and felt that he shouldn't have been driven to that position um, because it wasn't his actions that drove him there. It was the fact that the system and society, the way it is, isn't going to be as forgiving. And he feels like he has to go that extra step. You see, I mean, that's interesting because in any other situation where any situation that wasn't about sex offence... Yeah, like a shoplifter, right? Uh, uh, God, what's the word I'm looking for? A, um, a pathological shoplifter, I guess. Yeah. Someone who habitually shoplifts, but, uh, I don't know, hits rock bottom and wants to improve. And they're like, look, I'm going to show you I am a changed person. And I'm going to do that by chopping off my hands. We'd say, what? <laughs> I believe you. You don't have to chop off your hands. <laughs> <laughs> He'd have to go quite a long way now these days for me to believe it wasn't all a ruse, though. That's the thing. Yeah. I mean, in that particular case. But you look at that and you think, well, if you just if you remove the emotive element to it and what he's already done, because yeah. the question of whether or not someone can be re rehabilitated at all is something worth talking about. Um, because I think sometimes society believes it, but it picks and chooses when it believes it. Indeed. <laughs> so it is that, on balance, that person, if you stripped all of the detail from it and just kind of explained it using algebra or whatever, they had more conviction in wanting to be a member of society mm. than any of the rest of us has ever had to show or probably ever could. There's an argument that says that person is one of the bravest people there is because they are willing to fundamentally change who they are just to be a part of society yeah i hesitate to use the word brave in the same way that i hesitate to use the word evil i'd also say that when it comes to the term evil i find it easy to apply it to acts but not to people so I would say that the things that they do probably are evil, but the element of those things that makes them evil is that they are imposing their will on another person. Mm -hmm. This is something we don't even talk about. We don't even talk about the possibility that for every sex offender or paedophile we hear about or, or who actually acts, there are lots of people wandering around with faulty wiring leading to, you know, depression or suicide, or just any number of different things sure. that maybe they never even come up with a name for, that they can't ever talk to anyone about, because we don't have any empathy at all in, in this area. This is one area where our society just doesn't have any empathy. Personally, I think that if we understood more about these people, not just paedophiles, uh, not just sex offenders, just in general, if we understood more about why people commit certain crimes, why people behave in certain antisocial ways, why bankers are the way they are, why politicians are the way they are. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, what I'm thinking of is that can pull us away from um, a, 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 a quite a controversial area of, Please of discussion. Please pull us away from like... sex with children. <laughs> mm. <laughs> If I was going to um, move away from a controversial discussion, but still keep it on the empathy thing, I think homelessness, to be mm. honest. I mean, we have an understanding of how awful it must be to be truly homeless or to be in a situation where even the very basic things in life you can't rely on, shelter and food and a bit of money and, and these kind of things, where you are literally struggling and we are surrounded by it. I mean, any time you walk into a city centre, you're going to see it. You're going to be confronted with it. But it's so easy to ignore. Have you got some change? No. You walk past them because you're thinking, I, I need to be somewhere. Please don't even ask. Yeah. You know, I don't want to cast myself as an asshole, But there are just days where I'm like, not today. It's their problem every day. It's their life every day. See, I'm I'm very bad because the way I feel about that particular problem is, and I, this is by no means an original thing, I can't give money to all of them, I can't help all of them, so I just don't know where to start. Mm. I mean, in terms of the answer that idealistic people might say as well, start a soup kitchen if you care about it that much. 
start volunteering somewhere, but actually I don't, I don't care about it that much. That's kind of, I'm not that person. So, you know, I just have to come to terms with that. But the thing is that we can kind of relate to, uh, for the purpose of our conversation that we're having, um, you can kind of relate to the immediate hardship of sitting in a street, not having shelter, not knowing whether or not you're going to have enough money for food that day. Mm. We can kind of relate to that. But I don't think the thing we can get our heads around, and maybe most homeless people don't care whether we do, really, but it seems important to me for the purposes of talking about empathy. What we can't really get our heads around is they are actually a whole human being who wasn't always on the street and there are things that led them to being homeless and that's actually it becomes really difficult to even process them at all when you start thinking in those terms i think most of us if we intellectualize it we realize that each one of those people you know there's that whole they were someone's daughter or they were someone's son and you know maybe they were someone's parent or or something like that Mm -hmm. That's a little bit of wallpaper to the whole sympathy thing in some ways. And I've never really put this thought together before. In some ways, maybe I'm sometimes relieved when a homeless person turns out to be really, really drunk because it makes them less of a person. Because at that point, they actually are a problem to you. You don't want to deal with drunk people, whether they're homeless or just normal people. If someone's drunk and rambling and confusing and stressful to you, you're kind of well within your rights to just walk past them. To, you know, just to ignore them. I don't have to empathise with you. You are really in my face. Go away. And sometimes that's almost a relief because you don't have to look someone in the eye when they're, like, coming at you and you don't know what they're going to do next. Do you know what I mean? Wow, I've never thought of that before. That's a pretty hard thing to realise about <laughs> yourself. My goodness. I think we, we, we started off relatively frivolous and, and the, mm-hmm. this last quarter of an hour or so, things have <laughs> got quite in-depth and dark, hasn't it? But empathy is dark. I mean, it's light, yeah. but it's dark. It, and as I've said before, it's like real honest-to-goodness core empathy can ask you to explore parts of yourself you would rather not explore and you would mm. rather shut off completely. If any of you have an inkling that you might have a dark side, um, you might just want to tuck that away and not think about it. Sympathy allows you to keep that shut. Empathy does not. Empathy says, I want to explore every inch of your consciousness, excuse me, consciousness, and you might not want to do that because it's uncomfortable. You shouldn't have to. It's unfair to expect everyone to do it. And in fact, sometimes maybe some of us are wired more to do that. Again, I I have to admit that I tend to think of myself as a raw nerve on this stuff. So it's sort of, I find it hard not to look at that stuff about myself and about other people as well. I think maybe the thing that bothers me is not whether or not people have empathy or not. It's when people think they have. I think it's when people are kidding themselves. People aren't aware of their own limitations in this area. And so they think they're doing the most they could be doing and they think they're being the kindest person they could be and then they end up doing stupid things. A lot of the time I say stuff about this around political areas or idealism areas that people have trouble squaring because sometimes I come across as very right-wing and sometimes I come across as very left-wing. And that's because I have a lot of trouble with sympathy and I have no trouble at all with empathy. I find it too easy to put myself in people's people's shoes. And other people's shoes are sometimes quite tight and stinky and stuff like that, but I don't seem to have as much trouble with it as I should do. And I don't think you can be principled. Part of my problem is that people tend to be idealistic without paying attention to the fact that there are people involved. Yes. Like the idea that... You can find a majority of people who don't believe in the death penalty until you talk about certain crimes and then they're all about the death penalty. Well, you either you either believe that people can be rehabilitated or we should keep them alive or you don't. There's no... You have to do some really interesting mental gymnastics to navigate through how somebody who committed a multiple manslaughter through neglect is somehow... Oh, I don't know, that's a bad example. I'm getting a bit tangled up, to be yeah. honest. Okay, let, <laughs> let, let's wrap it up then. 
I know what I mean. I'm just having a lot of trouble putting it in, putting it into because the, because the problem is, like we've said, any time you even bring up um, maybe these people are human, it becomes problematic. We don't really have a language for talking about certain people as if they're human beings. Well, I think it comes down to if if it becomes a matter of consider that this person is human. What you're actually saying to someone is consider that might be you. The moment you have to think that they're not a monster, but they're actually a human being with pluses and minuses and huge fat failings, that they might actually have something, even the tiniest thread, in common with us, which then causes us to reflect on maybe what we'd be capable of if circumstances were different, if we were driven into a particular corner. Mm. I think that's frightening. I think that's challenging. And I think a lot of people would rather not have to think about it. And so it's easier to then turn people into problems or people into manifestations because then, you know, they're not us. How could they be us? That's my big speech to finish. No, it was good. I'm, I'm done there. No, I think every every, uh, every effort I've made to draw a wider social thing has ended up with me going off like a damp squib <laughs> and not really, not really finding my way to it. It's difficult. I think it's probably the hardest thing that we've spoken about, which is funny, yeah. really, because it doesn't. At the beginning of the conversation, it didn't seem like that, but the deeper we delve, the more challenging it is, really, to to try and separate your ability to discuss something and your ability to have empathy for it with an endorsement. There are things that I am willing to discuss that I do not agree with or I may be completely ambivalent towards, but here I am discussing it anyway. I think that we have had situations before where we've started out from fairly light territory and found our way to more complex and difficult territory, but there are... Certain things, there are very few things, but certain things it's very difficult to roll back from <laughs> in a conversation. There's uh, there's Hitler, yes. pedophiles, yes. and... Um, Piers Morgan. Piers Morgan, benefit fraud. Oh, yes. <laughs> did, did I mention Hitler? The feckless deserving poor. Um, the feckless, undeserving, rich. Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much. Only people in the middle are really blessed by God, I think, as far as it goes. We're the chosen people. <laughs> I think someone else already has chosen people as their tagline, haven't they? What, just people? Their tagline is the word people. No, I, I think I think Jews are the chosen people. Mm. Jews. <laughs> we should stop I think you've you've probably got an end in there somewhere. Your last speech was probably the end. No, I'm going to finish with Jews. (laughs) The 5th of March 2014, 11 hours, 5 minutes, and 37 seconds, Nick Papa, off to a good start. I'd forgotten I'd opened up Skype. I am listening to Harmontown while I work. It should be possible to work while I do that, but it just isn't. Steve Bishop, I can listen to words if I'm not working in words, otherwise it should have to be music. Nick Papa, yeah, I'm kind of the same, although I can usually handle some lyrics, but live podcast probably is a bit ambitious. Oh, lyrics are ignorable, but spoken word I can't handle, a lot of the time I'm not listening to music for the lyrics. That might sound odd. I totally get that about music, kind of, depends on the lyrics, really. I always thought two unlimited were undervalued as forgers of the written word. I had to look them up because it's been such a long while, my instinct was that they did no limits, I'm so glad that my memory of two unlimited is apparently intact. Techno 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 techno. Apparently you're ready for this is actually called get ready for this. This is new information which shakes me to the core. Amazing how I read that message and it immediately plays in my mind. Yeah, same here. I think we can probably see you for neurological damage. You never know, should one of us one day guest on Nevermind the Buzzcocks we may be thankful for knowing such trivia. That's if we accepted the invitation. Oh fuck yeah I'd accept the invitatio. Wait, 
Who's hosting? If it's Adam Buxton or Simon Amstel I'm fucking in, I may try to bomb them. Although I suspect Simon Amstel might have more experience so there wouldn't be so much trial and error. Must be nice to have a teacher in a situation like that. I suspect it's invaluable. 12 hours, 27 minutes, and 26 seconds, Nick Papa, I am transferring to phone, by the way, got to get me comics. Sure sure. Here, sent from my android. Cool, topic panning out along similar lines to my thinking too. Tonight thanks god it's them instead of you. Bonio. Far there won't be snow in Africa this Christmas time under well that's bloody obvious. In fairness to Africa there's fuck all snow in Britain most Christmas times as well. Maybe future Twee Christmas cards will show the British countryside not dusted with snow but deluged with swampy floodwaters. Merry Christmas. Santa delivering gifts on a dinghy drawn by seven fire rescue officers, one with a red nose because of an ongoing fight with alcohol addiction. What's that Santa? asks one cheery young child. Is that your massive sack full of gifts and Christmas joy? No little boy. Boom Santa, this is a sample of the new sandbags you can buy from your local council for £4.99 each. Every year the family gathers round the Christmas tree in their waders, to burn little effigies of Eric Pickles. 13 hours, 9 minutes, and 53 seconds, Nick Papa, I think your range of greeting cards is coming along. You really thrive in isolation of response, don't you? I love it. It was more dead air for me to fill with thinking something through before the subject was changed. It was fucking excellent. Google's for monetization strategies. Cards, I am telling you they are the future. They are, they are the future, or at least represent it, because we buy them in advance of events. Ha, ah, yes, do you think we could just do the podcast now, run this chat through one of those robot text-to-speech things? We used to be this whimsical all the time. Now we're just really introspective and serious. Closer to death I guess is what does it? Lol, yeah, we'll both be dead soon, probably me first. That's fine by me, tweet back and let me know what the afterlife is like. At Nick's sight, it's darker than I imagined but it's quite quiet, which is nice. 14 hours, 2 minutes, and 21 seconds, Nick Papa, in meeting now. K. Oh no I am in hell. Oh no meetings. Thank goodness the postman always knocks twice cause I was doing a number two. Lols. 20 hours, 8 minutes, and 4 seconds, Nick Papa, last minute panic as I realized I didn't know where the fucking power lead was. It wouldn't be the same without a last minute panic. Gah, everything is trying to fucking update. Why does it all want to auto-update? Because I literally only use this laptop to record this show, and haven't sat down to sanitize all this stuff in ages. Do you keep putting it off, Nick? Ha, no, this is very much a genuine I only ever realize it needs doing when we record this and have forgotten by end of recording so it doesn't even make it onto the list thing. I'm Marseille let's start, and if my computer starts dicking around I will kick it in the c**t. Computer c**t. I hit for craft work if I recall.